Welcome to In Conversation With. Join me, Danny Jarvis, as I sit down with guest DJs, promoters, record labels, content makers, and anyone making moves on the underground house music scene. There's plenty of nostalgia, but there's also some key insights as to where the underground scene is today. So if you like what you hear, please hit the follow or subscribe button and leave us a review. Wherever you will listen to your podcasts, at the gym, in the car, or chilled at home. Relax and enjoy In Conversation With. So Sean, welcome to uh, In Conversation With. Great to finally properly meet you. Um, yeah, our paths have crossed over the last few years, so it's it's lovely when I get these opportunities to, to chat to somebody properly and face-to-face, so to speak, and uh, talk about the stuff that we get up to when we're not doing our main job or should be doing our main job. So um, just for people who um, haven't met you um, and the listeners and followers, etc., just give me a quick introduction to yourself, Sean, and what you do and what you've been doing online in our music community for so long. Uh, okay, I mean, my um, day job stuff is very, really quite boring. It's like IT, IT project manager type work um, within financial services. Uh, interesting sometimes, different technologies you get to look at and stuff. So that side of it is quite good. I mean, in terms of the music stuff, um, my main, uh, what do you say, passion, I guess is uh Saturo Sounds that's kind of like over the past I think five years now I guess I've been one of the kind of the main people driving that forward and I think we're uh I would say that we've kind of like grown during that time so that's been that's been fun um and then also more recently um since a couple of years back uh, got picked up by Proton Radio to be a DJ and curator for their for their station as well, which is you know quite a massive thing to happen, really. Yeah. Especially to I'm not really anyone important as such. <laughs> so yeah, that was good. Well, that was good. So where did it where did it all begin for you? Because you know a lot of people I'm not going to guess that we're, we're a similar sort of age. We're sort of similar in terms of um, the era in which we all grew up and we're exposed to kind of um, various. I call it various sort of dance music because now we're kind of more accustomed to a to a term of dance music being very broad. But um, certainly the chaps I've spoken to. Um, came from kind of acid house through the rave culture. What what was your kind of starting? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I've always been interested in like music and buying music, <clears throat> and kind of like first and foremost, I'd say that that's kind of like the sort of person that I am. I'm music, a lover of music, shall we say? Um, and so in the eighties, that was kind of like, you know more of your uh i guess i first started getting into music in terms of buying stuff and noticing more uh things around kind of like 87 88 i guess uh i remember uh like 
Damn. When the New Order Tektronik album came out, that was one of the things that I kind of picked up that was electronic. That was like, that was quite a, uh, you know, I really kind of started against that sort of sound. And then not too long after that, kind of more acid house sort of stuff kind of happened. And um, I think one of the first kind of things that I got, like the Shaman, although they're not, you know, they're not really acid house, but they're quite big kind of electronic people. And then on the Shaman into, I guess, more rave stuff and going to raves from about 93 onwards, really. And always, um, you know, being more, it was not really kind of like, you know, going out to party is part of it, but being part of that kind of like massive experience is quite a, going to a rave with, another, with thousands of other people there is pretty, it's pretty, uh, pretty good thing to get involved with. Whereabouts did you grow up, Sean? Uh, so I'm kind of like North Essex. Um, so near us, we had the Prodigy. The Prodigy always were doing something um, fairly local to where I was. They were one of probably the first wave acts that I saw. And then we kind of, and then kind of around, not too far around there, you have like pretty sure slip mats from that way. Uh, so in terms of rave people, it was kind of you'd always see slip mat on the bill somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and kind of the drum and bass stuff as well. So, uh, but yeah, Slipknot I guess was one of my favourite hardcore DJs around that time. It's funny, isn't it? Because you know he's he's still actually you know I don't know if you know he's still really really active. Um, I think on one of the profiles that I'm on, I follow him. And he still does so much stuff, and actually quite varied music as well. Yeah, yeah. He was on a he was on a bill the other day playing um, Ibiza classics and stuff like that. So I too followed Slipmat. I think Slipmat and Sai, um, a couple of the of the kind of DJs of that ilk. I think Slipmat was for me. He could kind of mix. So could DJ Sai. Um, I've lamented about that on, on on a few other podcasts. Yeah, I'd very quickly worked out who could mix, and that that was an important thing to me is that the, the tracks went together well, rather than the kind of like you know chop chop sort of style that a lot of the guys had, um, or or worse, just literally rammed them into each other. He did a load of other stuff as well, so me and my mates would would queue up behind each other with with armed with slip mat tracks and mix them together. So. You're quite lucky, really, then. If you were down there, really, a huge, huge portion of the raves were down south, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially early on, yeah. <clears throat> there were some videos so, online that someone's put up about Fantasia. Fantasia's probably was... I didn't go to Fantasia. That's probably like a year before, really, I started going out to raves. But anything, it was, anything from that era was pretty, pretty good to reminisce about. I mean, what was it? Was it the kind of chaos that people sort of like to lament? I mean, or, or, albeit, was it a little bit more organised than we'd like to think? It's quite an effort to get a group of people to go to somewhere, isn't it? And um, you know, without social media, without mobile phones, it's you know, you have to know what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I was not so. I mean, 
you know, they he had the thing where some people would post about, or not even post, but you'd get a, a number about call a number and go and kind of like follow something to an unknown place sort of thing. They were kind of like um, less of the sort of things that I was going to. I was more going to Dreamscape and World Dance and playing dance stuff rather than, you know, following random messages on the N25. Did you um, did you buy the tape packs like I did? Did you go in for all of that as well? Or I did some of them, but again, it would have to be something that meant something to me musically, if you know what I mean. I didn't just mm-hmm. like buy it religiously and then. But yeah, if it was a good night, then yeah, I would I'd go and search it out down our local our local um local shop that kind of stopped those sort of stuff. Yeah. I think that it was always it was always quite a treat to get a, an actual original what you would class as an original tape. If you had an original tape on your hands, you you were gold and you make circle because they all wanted a copy. <laughs> And you'd you'd go through this whole process of pretending that you you didn't like like giving them recordings despite <laughs> despite the fact that later on as a teenager that absolutely was a pocket money winner for me at dinner. There's just kids queuing up with their little Woolworths ten packs of TDKs going oh Danny will you record us this and I'd be like oh it's going to cost you three quid so. It was a it was a, it was a good business to get into. I think I think for me again because I didn't the, the rave scene in sort of ninety one ninety two ninety three. I was only really 12, thirteen fourteen, and there wasn't any of that going on in the north. So there was no real chance of you if you get into something like that. And I think at that stage, my brother wasn't my older brother wasn't quite into that and he lived in he lived in Manchester that's the, did he did he or did he not yeah he, he did he lived in Manchester but he would be going to the Hacienda work which was you know different again um to that yeah. scene but it was a huge source of my music early on that um and certainly I got quite heavily into drum and bass I was very into Bookham the first LTJ Bookham um cassette that I had I was like this is different I really, really like this. Um, a kind of a peacefulness to his music, and I think back then they kind of called it intelligent drum and bass, which fair, fair, fair sort of um, description for it. Really, I was quite hooked on that. So any packs that he was on, I would, I would gravitate towards them. Um, so when, when you um, moved through that period, what was your kind of first kind of clubbing experience? Where would you have? Where would have been your mecca? Who would you have headed to see? Um, I kind of, often, uh, I guess we did have something kind of close to where I lived in Ipswich, and they sometimes had. Uh, I think it turned up on like Renaissance circuits and things like that, um, but it, there wasn't anything. There wasn't. So it's kind of like kind of a bit split wasn't it because where we are it was more raves and then she went to london obviously i didn't really go to london at that sort of like 18 sort of age yet really but in london it was clubs and if obviously if you went further north then you had kind of like your more it was more recognized by which clubs were good and like you know um Shetties or whatever you heard of <clears throat> so uh the name of the one in it's, it's, I can't remember what it is. 
There was one a little bit later than that. Around the time, uh, oh, it wasn't too much later. Around 94, started going to one in Clacton that we found that was pretty good. And that was called Oscars. And that it was kind of like two rooms. One of them was like um, hardcore drum and bass DJs. And the other room was like a house DJ. So I think they had, we did have John Digweed go there, I'm pretty sure. But it was more when we were going there. You were going for the uh, hardcore or drum and bass DJs, and then you would kind of like slip into the room just to see what that was all about. And it was a little bit later. It was more kind of like '95, I think. I like got more into the house sort of sound, and the ray, the hardcore stuff was kind of like slightly changing because it was only really good when it was the breakbeat stuff, and then when they kind of started changing it to more like um, hard house kind of beats, then I wasn't really into that. So. Yeah, you're right. It did. It did change. Um, you're right. A breakbeat is the right. It's definitely the right phrase because that's when I sort of started to veer off, really, and sort of listening to the Orb and and kind of Future Sound of London and and for me that period was a kind of hodgepodge of of the CDs and stuff you had. Um, you know, you, you, you back then obviously those kind of acts were quite niche still. You didn't, you were lucky to see them live back in those early days. So you really did only have the kind of clubbing, the hardcore DJ stuff. I, I originally grew up in Manchester, but moved to Blackpool, and um, Blackpool was a, was an odd one because it had quite a lot of small clubs. Um, so I actually played Blackpool quite a lot. Um, early on in kind of 1990s and some of those clubs that kind of housed those DJs continue to try and and keep that kind of vibe going some came and went but um a good one in in Blackpool again 1995 it was there's a little place called Federation opened and it was underneath Blackpool Tower and when they opened up they kind of redid it and they really made an effort to get the big DJs and at the time you kind of Jeremy Healy's Sasha played there Digweed played there and for a very small 400 capacity club absolutely everybody and their dog that was into it rammed themselves into these places we had a, a good run for about for about two years, um, but really anywhere else you had to jump in the car. You had to go to Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, Sheffield, um, without boring you or any other listeners that I've talked about it a lot. But the advantage for an older brother who not only could drive, you know, you could stay at his for the weekend. You know, tell your parents that you were just going to stay at your brother's. They did not have any clue what we what we were getting up to. So I was very, very fortunate to kind of not not have um, too far to go for quite good, rich clubbing once once it had moved out of hardcore into the clubs. Um, and I, I re, you know, I used to listen to the raves and think, oh, it'd be amazing for thousands of people to be there. Like you could hear all the air horns and all that. But actually, probably at my heart, the, the, the 400 to 500 pasty clubs is is where it's at because – by the end of a night, a hedonistic night, you would have met a lot of the people. You know, you had your area, the dance floor that people were on. And like you said, the experience of going clubbing was par- was paramount to the DJ. It, it, it didn't – whoever was playing was kind of at that time 
plain to people who were totally open and up for it. And to be fair, a lot of the DJs would, there would be quite a lot of crossover tunes. Um, You know, and even Jeremy Healy would, bless him, bless his cottons, would would mix together quite a lot of varied music. And you would hear several of those tunes in a Digweed set or a Sasha set or anybody else. So, you know, when you went out, you went out with your mates. It was just about being in it. Um, yeah. I um, used to sit at home listening to the to the essential mixes. You know that they did the first wave of them at the Q Club, and I'd be thinking, bloody hell, that sounds absolutely amazing. Um, and then later on, my my mates got away to Ibiza and went to the few of the Radio One gigs in Ibiza. So we were we were all mad, mad, mad clubbers. It was, I, I think, it was the right time. Um, early sort of mid nineties. It was just a perfect explosion, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, it's really good. So, when did you, like a lot of us, when did you kind of start taking to the decks? When did you say, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually tackle this myself? Um, I think a friend of mine was getting rid of um, his decks and upgrading to techniques probably i think and and he basically said that i could have them and that was around i don't know when that was that was probably that was probably 94 so i think he gave me his old sound labs and a gemini two channel mixer and that's that's when i kind of started having a go <laughs> that was the that was the leap of faith <laughs> it's it's um it's it's fascinating when I talk to people about this and I, I hope you're going to sort of give us some insight into your world, but it's very difficult in 2023 to explain to, to a lot, even people similar age now who DJ now, but didn't back then just how peculiar a thing it was to do because, um, I, I would set these decks up. You, you, if you were lucky enough, you could leave them out, but even like to a lot of people, you'd pack them into the cupboard and then you'd get them back out and you'd kind of quickly plug them all in. Your parents would go out or whatever and you'd blast out whatever nonsense you you were going to do for like two hours because it was just a kind of crazy, noisy business. And, you know, few, there was a few of us who were into it. Similar to you, I got my mate's old decks. But it was it was really different, wasn't it? Because... You, you you couldn't just plug and play, and you certainly just couldn't play any old record. You had to find them, source them, um, and it wasn't it wasn't something you played at. You had to yeah, put yeah, the yeah. effort in. Hundred percent, yeah. I mean, I was I mean, thinking we had quite uh, we had two quite. So my hometown is Colchester. In there. Um, there was kind of like one record shop that was there for your kind of hardcore stuff. And then there was another one that, although it stocked, you know, indie and other sorts of genres, it did have, it, the person that was running, it was quite switched on for good house music. So being able to go down there and just kind of like flick through what they got in that week, it, that was good. Um, and then take it home and, have a go on the decks or whatever yeah but i was quite around that time so obviously what's, what's, that's 21 when i was like 20 21 i'm still living at home at that oh, i've just come back from university at that point um so 
took my decks university come back still luckily able to put them up in my room sort of thing so did get quite a few you know chunk good chunks of hours just just lost on trying to get music to sound good <laughs> were you were you kind of known in your group of friends as being a dj or did you did you kind of play it down or how did you uh, how did you sort of come across so- Yes, I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, the group friends that I had, not all of them were that bothered about kind of like trying to DJ. They were, all of us were kind of like wanted to go out and either go to club or go to a rave, whatever. But there was only a couple of us that were doing it. So like the, like I said, the guy that um, gave me his old decks, he's, he was kind of like the first one to get into it. Then myself. Um, and then I think there's only really probably another one out of say a group of ten lads or whatever that really wanted to was that interested enough to kind of like pick it up and try and you know work it out for themselves sort of thing. So yeah, if it, if there's any kind of house parties or things like that, then generally it was either at my parents' house at the time or it would be my decks that we took somewhere and I you know it'd be me being the DJ I guess. What were you mixing back then? Can you remember a lot of the tunes you were buying? Or uh, so the main kind of like the year that I really got into the house stuff was was definitely in um, '95, and that was kind of like uh, you know got Perfecto really kind of like doing crazy stuff. BT comes along, and by far he was kind of like the most influential person on kind of like the sound that I enjoy uh, so his in my album was kind of like it was, that, was, that was pretty impressive stuff sort of thing so yeah mm. anything that whole what they call epic house era that that really was my kind of favorite well it came along at the right time for my kind of interest in music if you know what i mean it was kind of like a, yeah. it was a happy accident that i was getting into music at the time that this kind of like quite forward thinking music had come along and it was certainly different to you know even the music that was around in 94 sort of thing that was more kind of straight up house stuff and then you got um i mean there was some progressive stuff but it didn't really kind of take off i think till a little bit later so 95 was quite a good catalyst for that stuff i mean he had go with paul oakenfold stuff that was what's that he did his go in 94 so yeah end of 94 to 95 is when things really kind of took off progressive i think yeah i would agree i mean prior prior to that i was very um very into like gospel house um mm. chicago sort of house i'd i'd bought i used to buy a lot of um a and p and records um I used to buy quite a lot of like the dub sides of stuff um, around that time, sort of living in Manchester, you know, Piccadilly Records, places like that were very sort of Graham Park house sound. Yeah, yeah. And you're right, actually, there wasn't there wasn't enough progressive records about to kind of make a progressive set. I think I think even in 94, I think the first time I sort of saw the term, the phrase progressive house on the flyer, it was kind of like, um, garage up front house 
and progressive house was how it was listed and that that was just that was just like a residence night it wasn't even uh, djs it's just what they'd sort of put on um and very very occasionally in somewhere like dry bar before we'd go out to the house or some of the bars in manchester the after hours clubs you might hear the odd thing which would probably translate to like a spooky track something like that um on Gorilla Records or something that was a bit more offbeat. But I remember, I remember really right is when Perfecto kind of really springboarded um, into records that you could buy in your HMVs, in even Woolworths, the kind of Perfecto thing was everywhere. You could get hold of it. And what was good about Perfecto at that time was the other sides of the records you know, Oakenfold had clearly put out something like, well, I think it was Wild Colours, Dreams, and you'd get something like that. And then, you know, which was the kind of the, his, his sort of Fleetwood Matt ripoff. But then on the B sides, the B, these other interesting remixes. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was like, the, what was the no guy's Yeah, yeah. All of that stuff was, was very different. So mm. I remember around that time, you were, when you were mixing, you you really kind of had to lead up to that stuff you, you i think there's probably it's a bit of an insight to myself this is probably an insight as to why i dj the way i do is because you had to build up to those tougher sounds if you were playing if you were playing man with no name like fluorescence they were right at the end of the set because they were just absolute out and out bangers with about 15 to 20 seconds where you had to get your act together to get that 15 to 20 seconds in um so it was it was tough and i think you're right really the sort of art of mixing was helped along by people starting to create records that could be mixed Mm. um but in saying that you know it probably wasn't until um it probably wasn't until Global Underground where you really, really, really started to get well mixed CDs. Or sorry, I beg, I, I beg your pardon. Like uh, the Renaissance, there was only those guys, and then Global Underground that seemed to focus on mixing music and kind of playing it in a style that um, that worked. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there was Journeys by DJ, wasn't there? That was slightly earlier. Yeah. Um, but if you, like, take Digweed's CD for that, that isn't a... That is more, I would say, it goes a bit progressive, but there's still quite a lot of housey sounds in that, and it, that that's kind of more your... Um, so for both of those, I think Oakfold did one as well that was a little bit more like a scholar one. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, until Renaissance came along and kind of like made it more of a kind of global thing. I mean, you know, I don't know if it reached globally, but certainly in the UK, it was like suddenly people had discovered house music because Renaissance had put out a CD sort of thing, even though obviously it hadn't. But until that came along and kind of had that, I guess, you know, marketing behind it and whatever, but that was kind of like your... Uh, explosion point, I guess, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the um, the period really where where kind of 
I was at with DJ, you really, really studied the music around you, didn't you? I mean, when you got back to a party or people had CDs on their shelves, you could quickly weed out what was kind of became sort of 1996, 97, there was a lot of fodder, a lot of clubs, the annual ministry, you know, there was a lot of stuff that just that just wasn't like that good at all. Um, there was lots of different stuff that would all be rammed onto comp- compilations together that was kind of odd. Um, and you're right, I think early on I'd um, started to collect the... Um, DMC stuff mm. that that like you'd get like Dave Seaman would play like half an hour and then Carl Cox would play half an hour and there'd be like six tracks of his and six, and up to the point really of '95 everything was just small and snapshots and mm. kind of Digweed's second album a Renaissance album was like hang on a second this guy's like. 60 you know sort of 50 tracks across three three cds that all work together and like work in this big journey yeah. and that was just that was a massive massive game changer because we would listen to that cd tape even it was a tape on the way to clubs it would be we'd go through all those tapes on the way there and the way back like religiously nobody ever questioned that you would just put that same tape in and that would be warm-up and I think during that period, one of the things I enjoyed the most was when you used to go to the clubs and hear these DJs play. You, you could, it was moving at a pace, wasn't it, in 95, where you couldn't get your head round that they weren't playing anything like they were three months earlier. Whereas in 94, you could hear a DJ play a set. He'd play the same set in the next club. He'd play the same set, and then he'd just move a few records around, and you'd get a tape of him, and you'd go, they're just playing the same music. But those DJs, Digweed Seaman and Sasha, followed him everywhere at that point. I'd go, and I'd go, I thought I'd just got my head around this, and I don't know what they're doing. Even though I was mixing it, I couldn't work it out. I couldn't. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I just couldn't work it out. That's very special. Yeah, it was. It was. He could do stuff with vinyl that only really seems natural with digital, and and that's quite a special thing. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, I think one of the things that turned me off a lot was when the speed went right up. Uh, You're talking now, sort of ninety eight. 99 I think it was a strange period where I kind of stuck to my guns and kept my BPMs a lot lower and and fell in with a with a crowd in Cheltenham where most of the DJs I played with were trance DJs so I ended up playing prog as a warm-up for them Mm. but but would but would try my very best to keep it at like 125 126 so that it had some depth because everything just seemed to rattle out and 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 just get get lost um i mean even then sound systems and vinyl were the quality was very difficult i think i can't remember who i spoke to on on this one of the conversations I remember struggling a lot with some of the vinyl that was being printed at the time. It was so thin. It was rubbish. You got in a club and you put the needle on and you'd be like, fucking hell. It just was so raw sounding and so kind of analog that very soon I kind of became a lot more picky about records, what records I wanted to play. 
um, where I would get them from. Um, when I was in Cheltenham, I used to go to Oxford and speak to Joe at Massive Records, which is where a lot of the big DJs were getting their records. And you would spend a lot more for a, a decent slab of vinyl. Um, but of course, the danger then was you were spending more money on better vinyl, but it was it was getting released quicker and quicker. Um, and you know, warming up for trance DJs who were playing these massive instant kind of floor fillers. It was difficult as a progressive DJ getting that groove going. So my clubbing experience was quite odd because I enjoyed more playing in the bars where people were kind of sat and not necessarily dancing. And the club where they would, on a Wednesday, they would let me literally play anything. So I would play every genre together and kind of build it up over the night. And I think that's where I kind of realised that I was more of a kind of session player than ever going to be somebody who stands there and plays 12 absolute banging records all in a row. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play yeah. all these and everybody's going to go mad. I just fell away from that. Um, so what what did you... What sort of level did you get to um, before you decided you had to grow up and get a proper job like we all did? In well, beyond kind of like house parties and stuff, I never, I enjoyed doing it, but I never really thought of doing it, you know, pushing to go and get a job in a club or anything like that. It wasn't really, I wasn't driven enough to kind of like do that. I enjoyed it, but... I'm not really, um, I didn't really think that it, uh, you know, mostly it would be to do, would I be good enough to do it sort of thing. So I, there was always kind of like that kind of feeling that I didn't really want to take that step <laughs> to find out. Do you know what I mean? So I was quite happy where I was. I wasn't really looking to do anything else with it. Um, and so I really just stuck to friends parties and things like that um there was i mean i did um so kind of like like you say the trance thing came along um and kind of did some of that for a bit i mean i've kind of kept my i've the most that i've been kind of like involved with is, is definitely been more recently so i mean i would follow you know certain trends whatever and like I say we had a couple of good record stops to kind of go and get a vinyl and stuff so from a, a hobby point of view it was all it was all good um i think i started um when i uh, then i kind of found some of the message boards and there was one kind of there's two in particular like the global underground one and the bedrock one so if we, if we like um like no like going to heaven see digweed like early 2000s end up meeting some people from there you find out that they're on the message board and then you spend quite a lot of time on the message boards just chatting and then people have started started up their own kind of uh little nights and stuff. So I did do a couple of things in London with a few people that are from the bedrock board. Um, but that probably really hit. Um, around mid 2000, I moved, moved away from Essex and work in London and moved up to Liverpool. So that, 
kind of like at that time, I'd say if things were going to have kind of kicked on a bit, it would have been at the time that we ended up moving. So that kind of um, slowed things down again. And then when we moved so up to you, Liverpool. Did, did you move to Liverpool with work or with, with family? Yeah. What was the what Well, was the it move was both, for? yeah. So it was a work move. Was basically the company that I was working for was setting up a uh, a new office in Liverpool, and I was asked to kind of go up there and kind of like be like a team leader kind of position sort of thing. Um, and it was you know maybe uh, Liverpool's a really great city, so I mean that was it was a good it was seen as a good opportunity to do it, but it wasn't a great time in terms of if I was ever gonna. Uh, take the DJ and kind of like to another level or something. Uh, but that was good. But then when we're up there, then kind of like it's a sort of, um, we had our first child when we were up there. So basically from 2006, I guess, I, I got rid of all my equipment in 2006 because we had a kid that came along. And I thought at the time that it would just be easy enough to, you know, get all the equipment back again. But I didn't realise that. It wasn't going to be quite as easy as that. Because <laughs> turntables uh, and all, everything, all the turntable stuff just kind of went a bit, you know, mental in terms of pricing and stuff. And really, if I'd known that they were going to do that, I would have just kept hold of it. But I thought that, you know, it'd be easy enough. Anyway, but between um, 2005 and probably 2014, 15, I, I kind of, uh, didn't have any equipment, so wasn't really following what the scene was doing. I, I remember that we had a really nice little period in 2003, 2004, where we had kind of like that, um, like the Matthew DK melodic Dutch sound that came along. Mm. Uh, they were a really nice couple of years, and I really, uh, at that time, I thought that was going to be kind of the direction that it would go in kind of like we've seen more recently over the past six, seven years. It's kind of been that more melodic kind of stuff. And I thought that was kind of going to happen back then, but it only lasts a couple of years. And then um, Electro that came along and kind of like I wasn't really following into that sound. So I gave yeah, up my equipment. Yeah. It's um, the, the irony, of course, of... of the scene we're in is that it's you know sociable it's it's supposed to be going out enjoying the music together but uh, but in reality and this isn't something i've talked about with anybody yet djing's quite anti-social um you know the 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 be behind the scenes of djing is yeah. um his headphones you know, if you're listening to music or DJ mixes or looking for records or um, searching for other things, it's hours spent listening. And you're either fortunate enough to be able to do that at work. Maybe you can wear, you know, even a few years ago, that was seen as a weird thing. But I was able to, to listen to music. I was involved in nightclubs. I was in bars and restaurants. There was always music around. So whenever we would have playlists or stuff, I would tend to curate the playlists. And, and I did that nearly for everything and would look very broad for like way back when Hotel Costas was like a, a new thing. I would look for like Balearic stuff. And I kind of kept myself busy with a lot of other sorts of music that, that ignited my passion, but it was in tandem with my lifestyle. Um, 
certainly the more like modern era like you're talking about the things we do now online it's, it's very it's quite antisocial because the time spent looking for it or searching for it especially as there's so much of it mm. is is, unbe- is unbelievable um and it's an odd um passion because like you say you kind of if you say you've got 300 400 records in your garage or your home or whatever yeah oh, tell you what i'm gonna do i'm just gonna ah yeah no i'm not just gonna spend 1500 quid on decks that either your family or your partner or whatever would just be going what you then got to set it up you, you if you've got to a certain age you know you want decent speakers you want decent headphones you want decent needles and you definitely want decent decks a lot of these things just become a bit of a barrier and i, I don't know about you but i quite quickly switched from the kind of cd era into mp3 quite quickly i yeah really got on board with that i was like oh this makes sense i can get a two-hour mix on an mp3 and listen to it on my computer while i'm working or i can put it on you know but even when the first ipods i was like right how do i do i need to get my head around this because i can have more music stored in a small place um i mean it's funny it's just just this morning i was looking at my cd collection um, I don't. I don't ever look at it because it's in the it's in the corner of my garage. It's in a cupboard and it's covered and it's not like a shelf you can see. So I never look at them. And I nudged it today. I went oh, and I just thought oh, I'll have a little look and I took it off and there there I am with this like. And I thought when when am I gonna like should I keep these? Are we gonna have a revolution like we did with records? Um, I've recently heard this thing that there's artists that release things on tape. Have you heard this? <laughs> no. I mean, I was like, what your marketing plan is to release it on a cassette and on nothing else. I saw this and somebody was like, what the hell do you play it on? And I was <laughs> like, no, you need, you need a machine. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> you need a machine. I was like, this is my niece. I was like, you need a like that that thing goes in there and then that needs batteries and they and they just looked at me as if to say this is insane what 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 would i do all that for <laughs> um but yeah i came across these these artists that only release music on tape cassette but it's it's difficult because like when you like when i let go of my records it's similar with these cds they're kind of quite precious they're all in really good nick um, I did actually have a CD player for quite a while, but it just decided I'm not going to play any more of your music anymore. <laughs> Even though there was no scratches, it just couldn't it couldn't cope with it. So I probably haven't listened to a CD in best part of three years. Yeah, I've never um, really. Been, uh, I'd buy some mix CDs, for example, but I've never gone to that thing of like burning loads and loads and loads of CDs. I kind of. Didn't do that. My medium for around that time, if I was going to record something and we hadn't quite sussed this digital thing, I'd uh, I'd a mini disc recorder, yes. and, that, and that's what I used for recording mixes. But I was doing mix, they're pretty good. I like that. But then soon after that, the, the digital kind of really kind of took off. So, probably so, as yeah. the story as the story goes, mini disc itself wasn't the problem. It was that Sony didn't release the technology to enough other companies for it to be available across different like hardware units but but i'm with you 
I think the first time I recorded a mix on mini disc, I was staying at my friend's in Jersey, and he'd got a mini disc uh, player. And I bought some mini discs, and I just thought it was absolutely brilliant, especially the fact you could, as you went along, you could ident the track. So I would mix the track, feel confident that it was like, right, that's that's out now. I'll ident it. Next track, next track. Mm. And it was a big game changer. The, the quality as well was really good. It was just on that cusp of taking an analog format from vinyl but but actually making it kind of digital um i agree with you it was it was a great format and um the way they were cased as well you could you could drop them and there was just no problem um, yeah. yeah it was a, it was a great format yeah, um, was, uh, really good whatever however they did the technology the playback of it was always really really nice really clean yeah um, and smaller, of course. So even the players were smaller. Like the mini disc, mini disc, like Walkman things, were were great. Um, it also, in this cupboard today, sort of fell out of the crack. Was my first ever Sony Walkman Ericsson phone. Oh, yeah. I, I, it's like this big, yeah. white and tiny. Orange. Orange, yeah, orange, orange and white. I yeah. think they did black and orange, and I've got an orange and white. And when I got that, I honestly, I thought I was, I thought I was like from the future or something. <laughs> I thought that was absolutely amazing. I was like this to people. It's, it's a phone and a Walkman. They were like, really? I was like, yeah, just fucking. <laughs> but getting, getting the stuff onto it was a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> it, it couldn't hold any information whatsoever. So was, you had to get this little tiny. Um, you had to get this little tiny adapter that took the little chip out. You'd plug it in and you'd have to try and work out what mix would go on it. And then you'd put it on and you'd be like, yeah. And every now and again, you'd have to go, oh, God, I've got to change it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a bit it was a bit bumpy back then. So if we if we sort of move back to more to, to more modern day, hmm. What you've obviously done quite a lot of stuff. Like most people that know you, who are going to be listening to this, um, know your name, know the things you're involved with, um, mm. particularly Saturo. Um, I'm really fascinated, and one of the things that I was dying to talk to you about on this chat was was the whole online radio station thing because um, lots of us do different things online now. And if we talk to each other, we can explain them to each other. But I'm not I'm not ashamed to say some of the stuff like online radio, I've got no clue, uh, you know, how it works. You scheduling the effort involved, the costs. I've got, I've got I only know the costs of what I do as a podcaster. So tell me where the idea to go. Do you know what? I'm, I'm a bloke who sits at home. I still love music. I'm still passionate about it. I'm, I'm going to do this. How did it all start? Well, <clears throat> Satira started a few years before I joined. I mean, I first found out back in 2016, I think. And I think it officially started in 2014. Well, no, we can't be at 10 years yet. 2015, maybe. Uh, and basically, it came about from the old or the first incarnation of the Sashran Digweed Facebook group and it was basically some DJs from there that uh, decided it would be good to create an online radio station. I mean, in the early days it's it, it's it was 
not trying to fill 24 hours of programming every day of the week. It was certain days you'd have certain people on at certain times. So it's not really much different to, you know, pushing out a, a SoundCloud mix or whatever, but rather than the platform being SoundCloud, it's a, it's a broadcaster. But essentially, it's essentially it's the same thing. It's just that you're using a different platform. So we, um, I think back in the original days, it's a platform called Fastcast, and basically they give you a streaming key, essentially, and you use that key, or you pay them to use the key, and then you can use that key whenever you want. So um, in terms of getting a mix out, you put the mix in the right uh, you know, in the, in the right place and then use the key and then press play. So in terms of, um, you know, methodology for getting it out, it's not really that complicated. The, the, uh, it's then um, you want to try and get more content out. And then as you try and get more content out, then that's where it gets a bit more complicated because you've got so many more things to organize in terms of just generally, um, you know, number of DJ examples. So I think in the first days of Satura, there were possibly six to eight, maybe maximum 10 regular DJs that were doing it. And then over time, I think that kind of doubled in the time up to 2018, maybe. And then basically since then, it's kind of we're we're at probably seventy DJs at Saturo putting out a hundred unique shows every month, something like that. Oh. So so, yeah. so pardon the but pardon the pun, but like did it did it kind of push your buttons early on from your IT background slash the music slash the, the platforms? Uh, Was there a kind of intrigue from you? Yeah, I mean, so when I kind of got back into music again, uh, when, uh, I mean, it coincidentally, the time that I kind of had more free time to think about what's out there seemed to coincide with another good time for when good music was being produced. So that was nice. And then the more that, you know, the more that you're into music, the more you kind of want to share it. And definitely the whole online thing made that so much easier. Um, and they just kind of you want to you end kind of gravitating to other people that have the same sort of interests and so you know when you find a good bunch of people that are doing something online and it's called interesting you're kind of like yeah I saw I really wanted to kind of be a part of that and like I say so I joined in 2016 and then around 2018 I kind of ended up having a bit more time and got even more involved and tried to you know, try and push it a bit further in terms of reach and getting other DJs involved and, and things like that. So is is it is is Saturo owned by one person? Is it is it a few people doing it? Is it is it a sort of club it's together a, and you kind yeah, of pay the it's fees? Much, and... It's a very much a collective. Um, like I say, there's probably seventy DJs on it. Out of them, so we kind of a different kind of. Um, categories are kind of you know so we have some well-known artists on there that we don't kind of get them involved with any kind of thing in terms of behind the scenes running of it if you're a resident dj that then there's kind of a small annual fee that we do to help pay for costs of uh streaming and different platforms and stuff um 
And yeah, it's, it's very much a collective kind of thing. I mean, we do have a management team that take more of the kind of behind the scenes responsibility to make sure that things, if there's any kind of technical things, that they're the ones that can be counted on to make sure things run smoothly and make some <clears throat> make some more of the kind of like decisions type stuff. But uh, generally, generally we try and keep it as um, you know, as much of a democracy as possible, sort of. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 good to it's good to talk to you, um, particularly about this side of things. It's not a um, up until now. A lot of the of the guests I've had on, I've tried to keep it sort of varied between people that are doing different things in the industry. You're probably the first person really on 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 um, in a similar level of me where you not only dj but you do this as well um i'm i've always been <laughs> i've always been a similar sort of person where i kind of jump in with both feet and don't always think before i do it and i think when i embarked on um my sort of progressive house uk journey um i had a friend who's a developer and um he he's one of my best mates gaz and he He's, you know, friends since we were teenage teenage boys mm. um, and club together and everything together. And, you know, he's a developer. And I said to him, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking to kind of do this. And I think it was in it was just in 2017 going into 18. I'd seen a bit of a reemergence of, of the progressive sound. And I was like, oh, you know, I've got all this like knowledge and I've got all of this back out of music and stuff going on in my head um at the time i'd i'd kind of um embedded myself in my job in in marketing in the automotive industry i kind of knew where i was with that and i felt like i wanted to do something a bit more creative and then you know one of the first things was like right what's out there and he kind of went away and researched some stuff he came back he said look here, here's how we can do these podcasts you know i'll set it up um it comes with x and y i don't need to do any coding but if there's anything that i can tweak or change i can do the coding and, and, and we'll look at it together so um, he kind of did the work on that side of it i fronted up the money i've always been quite good at being social so i would i would like get get sort of various people together and and i think that when i'm looking back at it the thing that i failed on and and it's still hard to kind of get my head around now is that in my job for marketing we did a, i did a lot of social media um for clubs restaurants bars everything and i was like yeah i know i know what i'm doing with social media i get it and I could, and I wanted to fuse the two things together. I, I wanted to have this online space, like you're, like we've all said, where you've kind of got people who are totally into it. And I thought this would naturally make sense to then have somewhere where they could go and get and access that music. And that music could also be found by other people using the kind of digital, um, the internet and, and digital stuff. So. I didn't throw myself into it blindly as in like I didn't understand what I was doing but w what I really struggled with was to put the two together I was like well if you've got hundreds of people in a group surely they're going to just go yeah this is great I've got this source where I can go and listen to all this music mm. and I mean this is forget all the algorithms changing and all of that nightmare that was that was later on but it I, w I was 
couldn't do it. I couldn't neither explain to people that this is the same group that's on a podcast and all you need to do is follow it. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to go to SoundCloud. You don't need to go to all these different places. You don't need to pay. It's going to be free. And all the marketing, everything that I'd learned wasn't working. And and I had a team of admins who were doing, helping with the social side of it, but I was totally on my own with, with this side of it. And a few things went in my favour. Um, Spotify picked up and we started to get some serious downloads. And I was inundated, probably like you do, dealing with different DJs, different people, listening to a lot of people's mixes, being sent a lot of stuff, giving it the time, listening to it. And I thought, ah, I need some residence here. This is this is like desperately what I need is some is some residence. I can't possibly listen to thousands of mixes, and I want to keep a level of quality that I think is right for my ear. If it's right for my ear and I'm fussy, I know it will be right for other people's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went through the whole period of going, yeah, but if you've got hundreds of people that want to give you the mixes, maybe they're going to put it on. And, and they'll have hundreds of friends. So you, it was always this thing in my head where I was thinking, right, there's there's a strategy and there's a method. Will the technology kind of you know, if all things are going in the right direction, will the technology sort of break and work and go? And just honestly, before I knew it, I was like a year and a half in going, there's nobody I can speak to about this. I'm I'm constantly in my head thinking about this thing all the time. On one level, the stats and the metrics look good. On another level, what am I doing this? For? Like, why have I, I, I just, I just lost my way. I was like, I mean, but that's a hard thing to crack. I don't think anyone, well, I mean, unless you're, you know, a global person trying to bring everything together is hard. I mean, we, even for us at Satura, I'd say it's trying to get people to kind of like, just switch on a bit and, uh, what's the kind of word? I mean, we're putting content out there for people, but I wouldn't say there's necessarily <clears throat> getting the engagement is different is is more difficult than kind of putting out the content and trying to yeah. get the right sort of engagement. If anything, social media has made it more complicated than less complicated. I think just in the days of message boards, there was more of a community. Than there is in Facebook groups, for example. When the Facebook groups are great for kind of like bringing together people with similar interests, but I don't really always get the feeling that you know then they're, they're not necessarily serving the right purpose. I mean, they don't really. So we have a couple of groups, and the you know we have followers and then and then and people engage online and things like that but i wouldn't say that that translates to getting a load of listeners in every day sort of thing and i don't know that's always been a part of a part of it that i haven't been able to crack either is how to kind of like translate engagement into something a bit more meaningful so that's definitely something that is 
Yeah, you're Something right. That would it work is hard. Um, you know, in 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 a in a paid marketing role, you you create you create content. You're looking for leads. You know, you're looking for leads that translate to sales. It, it's it, it's very obvious. You know, paid budgets, digital strategy, totally different side of Facebook and all the other platforms. When you start doing paid stuff, it's just totally different. And like you say, the glory days of organic marketing working in your favour have gone. Um, you, you know, the, the the algorithms changing as soon as Facebook wanted to keep people on Facebook and not send them away. That was just an instant an instant change there, because how else are you going to tell somebody really that that something new is being released? You need to do this. You know, you and I are in the, in the same game game in that way. When we when we put something out, you obviously just want to tell people, look, I've done a mix or so and so we've done a mix. Without putting that link on there, you just know people aren't. They're just la- they're, they're not lazy, but they are. They're not going to go. Well, they're not going to remember because their their attention is being vied for that much. Yeah, yeah. That, they're not going to remember. They're not going to remember unless they're already a member. And that's why I went the podcast room, because you, once you click follow, it just came to your phone. I didn't have to remind people. I could literally just say, Ta-da, this is out. Um, but one of the biggest, I mean, this is, you either know this or you don't know this, but one of the biggest changes that came with um, social media was people not doing anything but still looking at it. Yeah. Now this this is a is a head a head scratcher because to if if on a person's own page on profile they've got X amount of friends the algorithms obviously dictate that if something goes on that so if I say happy birthday Sean and everybody goes oh it's Sean's birthday happy birthday happy birthday. That can go on for days, and it does. It's why you get people saying happy birthday to you a week after, because it because the algorithm's got going. On a page, the algorithm, how it's judged, is completely different. So there's different rules on every different bit. On a group, there's no algorithm. So if you've got a group of people that are there, anything you post on there, links or whatever, there's no algorithm that punishes you or, or penalises you for doing anything. Mm. So that's why like a group is great. But at the same time, the algorithm is never going to show the percentage of people on your page or on your profile that reflects the amount of people that are there. So every DJ knows, don't just post about DJing on your own personal profile. People will get sick of it. You should have a page. And then anybody that wants to, and it's this just goes on and on, doesn't it? It just goes on and on and on. Um, And up until recently, when I started to really delve deeply into the Apple analytics, the Apple analytics are unbelievable, by the way, on on the podcast, the, the, the level of detail they go to, is that if I now release mixes onto Progressive House UK onto the podcast, there's no difference whatsoever if you post it on social media. It doesn't affect it. Your subscribers get it, listen to it. Other people find it and get it. What the only difference can be is if you post later on, so it could even be a week, two weeks later, you might get some people going back. Then you notice. So I, I've just got a totally different approach now than I used to, where it doesn't really matter if I post on social media or not that a new mix is out, because most of the people that are going to listen to it get it. it it's, it's also not dramatically 
affected um, how many listens somebody gets because people can always go back and listen to older mixes. Mm. And the little people page that I created for, for yourself and the other DJs really works because now you've got the advantage of people going, oh, I like Sean's stuff. I can listen to his other mixes without to, having to scroll down. So I, I, I sort of stand by the podcast thing. I think it, I think it's really good. And I'm not starting to feel so um, chained to social media to see if all of this stuff's working. Um, I put in, over the last, I'd say, four months, I've put in a stupid amount of time to this. This is the next question I'm going to ask you because <laughs> your output... Um, I would have liked to have said mine was as similar to yours, but I've definitely slowed down. Your output of mixes and things you do is really high, Sean. So either you've got the most understanding wife ever uh, or your kids are in a cupboard or what. But how much time do you spend a week like doing all of this stuff? How do you manage it and your mental health and just all of it being in a, slot, in a, in a neat, tidy box? Well, I'm quite... The things that have gone in my favour with that regard have definitely been um, the pandemic and uh, being at home. And when I'm at home, there's more. Uh, so I'm at, so currently I work from home all the, every day of the week. So there's definitely more scope there to kind of like have a bit of a sidebar of checking what promos have come in and, and things like that. So just generally, I have a bit more time than I would do if I was commuting to London for two hours every day or whatever like that. So that helps. Um, at the moment, I'm if I'm finding time to do it, I'm doing it. I'm do, it's just a late night passion thing to one o'clock in the morning or whatever. That That's really how I'm doing it. Um, and if I've got quite... Like this week, I've done a few late nights because I've had a few mixes that need to be done this week for the weekend and Monday but again it's just kind of like wife goes to bed <laughs> and you stay up trying to get the mix done for two to three hours and then and then you go to bed so really yeah it's a uh, burning the candle at both ends kind of thing but yeah I, I, I quite I'm, I'm a night person anyway so staying up late is kind of if I wasn't doing that, I wouldn't be going to bed early anyway. So it yeah. suits me. Suits me doing it late at night. I mean, I I enjoy I enjoy TV like the rest of people. You know, I can quite happily sit down and smash a Netflix series in and 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 you know sort of binge on like whole series of things like the next person. Um, my my wife's a real a real grafter. Um, she she works hard. She works from home. She's sort of similar to you. Um, in terms of you know London kind of job, but works from home. Um, she occasionally needs to go down to London, um, and she occasionally she'll fly to other parts of Europe with her, with her work. But she she's a real grafter. But when she's finished, she can just sit in front. She'll just sit in front of the telly. Um, and I've always always been a kind of restless soul, busy mind. Um, you know, I'm up very early. I, I physically train just because for me I've always been quite a hyperactive person so like a physical exercise is a really important one for me and then the rest of the time yeah similar to you in a job where I was kind of 
you know, head of departments and my own boss, I could work and listen to a lot of stuff and without it really interfering as well, you know, put on mixes or people would send me mixes. I'd listen to them. Um, my residents would all send me their mixes and I would always listen to them before they went out on air. I would always do a write up on them. If I listened to them a couple of times in the day, it wouldn't take me very long with a kind of marketing background to write something quite quickly because, because it was all fresh in my mind. So I was able to do a bit what you did where you sort of do stuff in the day and you could upload stuff. And, you know, I was at work. I very early on just squared it with my boss, just said, listen, this is what I do almost like on my part time. I, I don't do anything with it, but I just upload it and uh, checked it with the IT guy. He was like, yeah, Danny, that'll just go under the radar. It's fine. So, I was, you know, same as you, I was just able to like process all the process bits of jobs. I was able to do it at work and it would all fit in. And it was like, this is great. I could listen to music. You know, um, if I was searching for tunes, I would kind of, this was probably about 2016, 17. I kind of learned that, that the algorithms on YouTube were getting better. Um, and I, I came away from Beatport a little bit and, and felt confident that YouTube was starting to serve me what I wanted. And then I would go back to, I would go back to Beatport and just, just put those in use Beatport all of the different baskets and I would put different music into those baskets for a different mood. Then I'd come home and go, right, I'm gonna do a mix and I would go in those baskets and say, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. But you're right, it wasn't really until it wasn't until lockdown where suddenly forced with kind of a very small perimeter of your own building and your own life that I was like, I'm going to go mad if I don't, if I don't do more than just this thing. Um, And then came the, the, the live streaming. And if I'm honest, that, that was really about cheering myself up, um, being in a routine. Um, I was, I was still working during lockdowns. There was just nothing to really do. Um, I was one of the senior managers in the company, so I had to communicate with staff, update them about furlough and do stuff like that. But it's and and deal with Toyota and the manufacturers, like update them on what we were doing, have some digital stuff going on. So I was I was very able to dedicate loads of time to to music, but um, yeah, it's. It is an interesting one because I think your partner does need to be like understanding that it's not just like something you're messing around with. You're obviously you're obviously wouldn't be doing all this if you didn't have quite a big passion for it. Um, I think the question I'm going to ask you next, which is yeah. one that I really suffer, is 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 what your what is your purpose like? What what is your why for doing it? Um. It's a real tough one, isn't it? I mean, I yeah. <clears throat> it's just... Uh, I would say that... It, I don't know. Certainly back um, in the 2016 when I kind of started doing the radio stuff is was just really because um, being part of that community and getting music out... But then the longer it goes on, is you're right. It's kind of like, well, 
is that all that I'm kind of interested in or is there kind of like now, you know, do you want to try and do something further with it? And uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, I would say to myself, I'm kind of like stuck in that thing of, I'm not really sure where it could go. Um, it certainly feels like there's some momentum there to do something with it. But quite what that is, I don't know. So at the moment, it's still just for, you know, personal pleasure and stuff. But we are, I mean, I'd love to do more um, live stuff. We are trying to certainly look into that side of it with Satura and, and try and get some events kind of going. So if there is a name, it's to do more live stuff. But that's more complicated than it sounds, <laughs> especially when you're trying yeah. to organize it yourself. I've got no think, one knocking on my door saying, Sean, do you want to come here and DJ at this place yet? So you really, it's at the, still having to kind of make it yourself if you want to kind of do stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when we started talking at the beginning of the conversation, if you remember, you sort of said, oh, you know, I, I didn't really, it was either that you didn't perhaps feel confident or, for, or just didn't have the, the want or desire to, to propel yourself into doing it. I think mm. I, I, I said to, um, I think it was Tom, Tom McMull on the last chat we had, that I did, I ultimately saw it as a way of making money. Um, if I got myself out there and pitched myself to a few venues that that, that if I brought enough people with me, would they pay me? N- knowing that I did have the people, it was just total. Like, I knew I knew exactly what I was doing. It was a hustle because the the very definition of who was going to come had nowhere else to go, and they were going to come to that bar, and then I was DJing afterwards, and they would go to the next place. So it was like a feeder bar. But I, I knew I knew that if I did a good job, that the value for the venue, because I, because I was switched on and I'd been um, involved in sort of hospitality from an early age, I knew that, you know, 100 people turning up and drinking for two hours was, was really good money for a venue. Even back then when drinks were cheaper, it was really good money. And, of course, they would pay you 50 quid to do it. And... You know, I thought mm, this is this is viable. This, you know, if I'd start doing four gigs a week, you know, I'm putting two hundred quid in my pocket. If I've got a little part time job as well, you know, I'm a student and I'm earning like three hundred, four hundred quid a week. I'm doing I'm doing all right. And also, sort of that, it puts you at the centre of things. I think DJing back then did put you in a social kind of group. Um, I would would have said that I was quite an extroverted person when I was younger, um, but in a weird way, in a weird way, when I'm behind the DJ booth, I'm kind of I, I, I struggle with that. I like my own space behind the DJ booth, and I don't particularly like the hustle and bustle of people coming up. So in that way, I'm a proper DJ that kind of wants to get my head down and get on with it. Um, but certainly when things are good and exciting, it was a very a very hard feeling to beat, but you did have to make your own look and you still do. Mm. And maybe deep down in my psyche, Progressive House UK was, was perhaps a slightly less obvious vehicle to be able to, like you say, meet people in the scene, produce 
stuff do stuff and find people out there you know a gang a clan your kind of tribe but also say look i can i can i can dj as well and i'm like really serious about it i think where we're at when i met richard trout at house of barefoot festival a few years ago um it's taken a few years because of covid and everything for us to kind of get in in a groove but he started putting on his own gigs um a place called bishop auckland outside of durham it's kind of it's it's out in sticks but he's doing a good job and i don't know if you listen to his podcast but he's just like yeah i'll have a go and he's a really brave kind of no-nonsense bloke he's like yeah i'm just gonna do it i'm well, I'm going to start DJ. I'm going to buy decks. I'm just going to do it. He's a really good partner for me because he's a lot more direct. Just get on with it. I'm the like thinker and the, the emotional one and like trying to think of all angles and stuff. And we've come together with this early doors club because I just got to a point where I thought, oh, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. And does it really just come down to the fact that if you don't go and actually DJ in a club, are you a DJ? You know, are you a DJ if you don't actually really, really DJ? Now, of course, I don't agree with that statement. People like yourself and myself, I listen to your mixes. I know the depth of knowledge and exactly how much you care about what you do. I can hear it. Yeah. Like, that's a DJ. That's what a DJ is. We've, we've both talked, didn't we, very gently about that space in between two records that creates a whole record of itself. That's DJing. And you mm. don't need to be in front of people to call yourself that. No, but, it's, but there it's, is this weird zone, isn't there, that we're all in where you go, Ooh, what's happening? Yeah, yeah. so I've got uh, a good friend of mine and he's kind of, uh, yeah, fairly recently, um, probably since 2018, 2019, got into DJing again. And his kind of journey has been a bit different in that he's managed to fall in with the people that do have access to the kind of being able to put on regular nights and stuff. <clears throat> so they've got um, this this nice pub that they use uh, just outside of our hometown, not very, not very far, about 10 minutes out. And it's a lovely pub and he's got in with the owner there. The owner's kind of like an old raver and they just um, put on regular live stuff all the time. So he's kind of gone, he's managed to find that little niche, which is being able to do the live stuff regularly. And, and that's good, but, you know, I've, from a personal point of view, I, I, I'm, that's what I'm trying to find. But we're having, where I live, there's not really that much stuff like that going on. So, um, so we're trying, I'm trying to do a live, more live stuff as Saturo and found a good venue, I think, near us, Milton Keynes, that should work. And um, we're just kind of, it's still kind of early days in terms of whether it will work, you know what I mean? Well, it's, it, it, it's it's tough. I mean, um, yeah, I, I don't want to sound like I, I kind of like, I, I, like make make out more than I am, but I think I've been fortunate that for a very long time in my life, I was, I was involved in hospitality bars, nightclubs, restaurants, and got a lot of experience of seeing 
how things are run and promoters and venues and DJs and all the different sort of facets. I think the one thing that is paramount is that it is a concoction and it is a partnership of several things. I think no DJ really, no matter how big they are, can take any um, can take all the all the plaudits for being amazing at an event. Certainly these days, the sound systems, um, the the money that's involved in the professional scene to to put up these gigs, uh, the technology now involved, just even selling tickets. Um, you know, I did a lot of work with Skiddle in 2015. I was part of a, a nightclub group that had um, multiple venues, including Digital in Newcastle and, and, and a couple of the other digitals when they were still called Digital. And, you know, the fees and the whole thing with Skiddle, you know, back then you used to sell the tickets and they would have to be scanned. So you'd have all the scanners at the club. You'd need, there's just, it's just it's it's ongoing and it's ongoing and i think one of the things that in our kind of smaller scene is really vital is one that if you can find a venue that wants to be a partner with you it's really important because if they're going to make some money which is really difficult for a bar of any of these days like really difficult you know they're up against supermarket booze they're up against arguably a bit more now outdoor spaces um ridiculous laws about noise mm. if you find somebody that is with you it's just a partnership because getting a group of anything more than i think 20 people together yeah. to have a, to have a quote-unquote party is you can have a good time. Don't get me wrong. Like, if you get 20 people that want to listen to that music, you're going to have a good time. You, you're not going to have a rave. And you're not going to have a nightclub. But it's got to start somewhere. And yeah. if it's a kind of watered down or watered up music community space, then that's that's what it is. I mean, Richard and I at the moment, we're in a, we're in a nice position because... We seem to have about 100 people. We've got a good group size. We're building it. We did our first event. We had 100. The club is massive. So the club holds on the floor we're on, it holds 400. Downstairs is 300. So the whole club can be like up to like 900. So the club don't really need us. That's a barrier, but we're doing it in the daytime. So it's extra revenue for them. The issue comes where there is no real need for the people to buy tickets because they know they're not going to run out. Right. So it's aimed not necessarily at older people, um, but it is aimed at people that don't want to be out till five in the morning. That's the whole point, early doors. That's the whole point. We want to get rid of that barrier. But people are busy, Sean, and, you know, oh, yeah, we'll come. Oh, we'll come to the next one. And you're like, oh, I might not necessarily be the next one. Richard, Richard and I have, have, have had a chat um, and it's about it's about tailoring or, or compromising with what you want. So, OK, we might lose a mega sound system. We're, we're going to lose the very, very nightclub sound that a huge, massive rig 
gives. And that was that was really good at the first gig because you know when you when you're playing your records at, at that that loudness and that level that you, that you know you you really sort of competing with with any club and we're pretty confident about our own skills you you know you're delivering on the dance floor because that's what that's what the club's there for so where we need to compromise really is then finding a venue that wants to partner with us that wants us there that wants 100 people there particularly in the day I can't stress that enough, you know, having been in bars and restaurants, getting daytime trade before your main trade is 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 really good. And we'll have to compromise probably on sound. You know, may need to take our own. Richard's got his own PA. We've all got we've got our own kit. And it, it's hard. But what we're finding hardest is that the club is just not with us at all there's, there's there's no help um and that's that's hard because there we are finding these people and it's old school like i'm on the phone people i'm messaging it's not just like let's do ads on facebook we want to build a community of people that really want to like meet each other feel safe people that can come on their own like like they perhaps would for a gig and who probably this is their only night out that month. You know, we've got a real mix of demographic of people, a real mix of um, different sorts of people who who we're in touch with. Mm. And if if we've we've had the sort of conversation about the fact that it's probably realistic we never would get two hundred people. We might have a group of a thousand people. If ten percent of them turned up, you know, would we be happy with that? Ironically, we really would. A hundred people in a room that holds a hundred people is a real atmosphere. If you, you know the Skyline events that are all happening, and yeah. um, before Skyline events put those on, um, my wife and I and some friends went up to Glasgow. I think it was see Beyonce or something, and we stayed at that hotel and we drank in that bar. It's not a big space, the Skyline thing. Yeah. Now they're putting on like DJs that fill massive clubs in South America in a very small space, I can imagine that's a really nice um, environment. I can imagine those events are ace. The DJs they're getting, the people that seem to be going. Richard's booked a ticket to go to one in July. They do a room rate, including the ticket price. I mean, that's just very clever. However, the cost they're paying for them DJs commercially or viably god knows how they're making that work so there's there's just all these things against you isn't there there's just all these facets yeah yeah and the main selling point is that it's a really unique venue to get them to get there i think yeah that's the reason why one of the reasons they're able to book the people i think it's certainly it's only maximum 200 i think that they can hold in it yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, pre- previous to that, really, when I think of Glasgow, I think of Colours. That was a massive night up there, Colours. Um, uh, but uh, other than that, you know, there are very few places in the UK able to sustain this prog scene other than like the 303 guys, just they knock it out of the park. But um, without taking anything away from them, I would just, I would argue that 
that space down there, I've been several times, is perfect. And it's in Liverpool, which has got good heritage and it's not far from Manchester. Um, you, you know, I would be surprised if they couldn't pull enough people there to see people like Anand and Nick and when I went Guy J and Henry Size and stuff. Mm. So it, it's very difficult. So I think Richard and I are very honest with each other about what we're trying to achieve. Um, and I'm, I'm really at a point where on holiday with my wife, I was like, right, something has to give. I can't. I can't continue to do all these things all the time. I really enjoy doing this, this particular thing, because um, I realised that my live streaming was taking up a lot of time, not only finding the music, then sort of programming it, um, and then mixing it. It was taking three nights of my week up, and I'd previously done podcasts like this in the initial run of content that I was putting out in about 2019 and I was producing the show myself again I was I was staying behind work afterwards everybody'd leave at five o'clock it'd go nice and quiet and I'd write the show and then I would get my podcast mic out and I had a little tiny office it was really soundproof I would do it all and it all just worked very neatly and I, and I, I stopped doing it I got, I got a bit fatigued with it and then I realised, like I say, was in back. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm not actually having conversations with people about this thing that I'm passionate about. I'm kind of putting all this content out and I'm, I'm listening to all this music. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm working quite hard at some of this stuff. And yet I'm not really speaking to humans at all. And, and that's where this idea came from was, do you know what, I could just, I could just email or shout out to somebody and say, do you fancy a chat? We'll just record it. And I enjoy these, you know, the editing it down afterwards is not that difficult if you use the visual because you just take the audio off it, take the audio off the visual, edit it slightly if you need to, top and tail it. You know, it's only like you would tidy up a mix, really. Go on Audacity, tidy up the sound, move a few things about and then do the stuff. I mean, I make it sound easier than it is because I obviously do all the artwork and everything as well. But I can't, I can't sustain this mixing, running events, the podcast. And I've just, just had a bit of a, a curve. I've got, I've, I've got, I'm going to be finding a new job right. and it's, it's just, yeah, Emma, Emma just said to me tonight on the way I'm in the car, I said I was speaking to Sean tonight, I've had it organised for a while, I said, but I need to give this a break. And it's difficult because I'm on a, I'm on a nice momentum at the moment. There's lots of people contacting me, oh, you know, would, would you consider me to be on the thingy? And I'm like, yeah, no problem. And I literally at one point had the next three months all scheduled out of dates to speak to people every week and I looked at it and I was like oh, just what am I doing yeah, it's a like a hamster like a hamster on a wheel um, but yeah it's it's, a, it's, something, it's um, difficult tangible isn't it I mean yeah you, you lose a lot online with it being you know you're there but you're not really there kind of thing so it's definitely nice to have the the interaction face-to-face stuff yeah definitely 
So what does the what does sort of to, to I'm conscious of the time. What does the future look like, Sean? What what kind of little mini goals have you got at the moment, or what like cool projects are you working on that you're um, busying yourself with? Um, there's a couple of things. Well, we're, we're going to go through a website and revamp for the Satiro site. We've got a couple of we've got a VR club that we've built for Satiro that we can uh, you know link the audio to and, and literally have audio inside the VR environment. And being wow. return, we still need to work out what the best use of that um, environment is because we are still quite you know it's quite a niche thing but what's been built is quite nice <clears throat> so we need to try and work out how we can maximize the use of it because at the moment we've just got um a little bit of video playing on the site but really it's more it's it's much much bigger than that but would you need uh, a vr headset and stuff wouldn't you yeah yeah you need to have the vr headset and stuff to to get into it uh, to get you know to get literally get access to it um so it's like i say it's still quite niche but it's good if we could find a way of bringing that more to the forefront of stuff um on a, other than that like i say we're trying to do more event stuff with satiro so, so last year we um we went to amsterdam dance event for the first time well as satiro for the first time um and we with the Kashmir lounge we basically had events um all day that weekend we had either satiro djs or some of our you know friends from within the scene national people that were ad came and dj there as well and that was like um it was it was a good weekend so hopefully we'll be doing that or something similar to that for ad this year cool. um what else yeah the label the label's going strong so i think we're up to next release will be release 30 oh sorry so coming up for uh coming up in may is a it's number 29, which is with um, um, uh, this DJ called uh, Tilco. He was one of the people that helped, that came and DJs for us in, in AD as well. He's like a really cool guy. He's from Albania. He, he I love his music. I've got I've got a, quite a few, fair few of his tracks. Yeah, Tilco, yes. Yeah, he's a he's a good guy. Um, so he's next. Uh, I'm not sure who's who's after him, but we've basically got um, releases coming. Possibly every six weeks, it's kind of like a six week kind of six week to eight week kind of schedule for the rest of the year and then going into 2024. Um, and Arthur's really good at the label side of stuff. He's, he's kind of the main person that's um, driving it with the artists and stuff and as to who's going to come on and how they should go about, uh, you know, the promotion side of stuff and how we can kind of maximize that. So he's a really good. Uh, he's a really good leader with me and Satiro. And then I guess on a personal note, like I say, we're trying to get the event stuff going and if I can do more live stuff, then that's that, that would be good. Yeah. Time goes quick, doesn't it? It's, um, you know, it's, it's May already and um, it, a lot of these things, the sort of fruits of your labour, they are kind of quite slow, but it can also happen quite quick. It's um, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, we tried to go for four events this year, 
Richard mm. runs, I think, about six himself of his own stuff. So he's made himself quite busy with me. Um, and yeah, it's it, it. I very rarely get the chance to kind of go clubbing now. I kind of dedicate myself to my thing instead of that. Um, and that really is 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 where is where I wanted to sort of stay in the last four years. Um, due to COVID and our little dog not being very well, Emma and I haven't haven't travelled. Travel and um, is a massive part of of what we do. We were skint in our twenties. We met at the end of my twenties. I met Emma. Neither has really been away. So travelling and to being in different environments and cultures, whether it's long haul or Europe is really important. I think with that coming now back into our, our lives a little bit more, you know, I I see that as just as important. Um, so I've I've kind of got to work out where I'm at with a few of the things. Um, I'm trying to sort of teach a few of the, the residents more how to upload their own stuff onto the podcast. Um, that that's a game changer once people can sort of self-administrate themselves. Um, that'll be easier. Um, I've kind of rethought through a little bit of the way I do artwork, um, make the artwork a bit more generic, give that to them rather than make it unique every time. So I've tried to sort of trim down the admin of, of what I do for for a bit more mind space. But I think realistically, if we can find a new venue for the events, that's a little bit smaller again like i was saying a partnership with a venue that wants us there is going to help with a bit of promotion i think we'd be, we'd be quite happy to find somewhere and probably stay at that level about four to five gigs a year i just you you you, you can't monthly's hard weekly's impossible you, you know and i wouldn't want that i wouldn't want to be saying to emma no we can't go away because i've got this you know, and even even scheduling like four events is difficult because you've got to work with what we're doing, her work, my work, Richard's work, his partner, his kids. You know, everything has has got to be planned out. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll see. But, um, yeah, I, I just I do I do admire Sean. I admire the the the, the work and the effort you put in. Um, again, like you say, to to be such a good DJ as well, and on the side of it, do all this stuff. Um, you, you're quite a talent, and uh, I, I do wonder. It's a bit of an open question to you. What part guys like us play on this scene? Because it does at some stages feel like the scene in the UK is so. If it's not commercial and it's not kids between eighteen and twenty-two going mad in like warehouse project like where the hell is everyone i just yeah i don't know i mean that's a a just well i think it's for whatever reason prog isn't really that sexy in the in the uk it's very sexy in other parts of the world but over here it's not really i don't know people don't really i mean there are people that are into it but i mean if you think about that as a percentage of even people our age, it's still only a very small percentage. So we're talking about quite a niche thing, even though mm. when you're in it, it doesn't feel niche, but in the real scale of things, it is quite niche. But I think that's kind of <clears throat> part of the problem, isn't it? Is that you want it to be a bit more global. And if it was, say, like, 
like it was in the 90s and things were everything just was a bit more bigger for the whole kind of music they went to it would, it would be a lot easier to uh, you know for example do better events and stuff but, but um my best my best friend um he is um he's half he's half polish and he we lived together uh, we were at school together we lived together in newcastle and he went off traveling around south america to he just needed a break he had a quite a corporate job didn't want to be doing it anymore and decided he was going to go off and travel he ended up staying over there and being a travel guide anyway he met um he, he stayed in argentina in buenos aires he met his he met his partner there and um you know he he and i were, were massive clubbers together when we were younger he was sort of one of my main clubbing pan and muckers he never got into dj but he was always a good clubber he liked his music we we both knew what we were talking about and he you know one of the things he would t- come back and tell me the stories about you know these massive four to five thousand capacity clubs bigger in some places you know he got a cordoba and he went to a few of those things went and saw digweed pasha he would see Hanan all the time um you know we had this big discussion about it and the reason i mentioned him being half polish is because he's already he's got half a culture that's not english mm. and now he's kind of got the other side of what he does um sort of south american he lived out there for a long time and then they both moved to London the the culture's different and when like Latinos or South Americans they'll talk about the Latino spirit and dancing and going out and being together and the warm air and all the things that are sort of inbuilt into their culture you know the going out and getting wrecked and getting leathered is not that's not what they're doing they're just they're yeah. out and those cultures have always been used to better temperatures, better climates, but also because of those climates, staying out all night because it is cooler in the night air. Spaces that are able to stay open, open air spaces. So the, I think really it, it's a cultural thing. And I also think that progressive house music is quite a patience game. You have to have a patience. There isn't immediate hits yeah, there's, there's there's pretty good bass lines sometimes, and some tunes have those big hooks. But it's a patience game. The finer elements, the sort of sweeter notes, the atmospherics, you know, vocals chopped up, layers of sounds. It, it's all about being calmer and more mm. patient. And we're not a patient nation. We're not... It's not in our culture. Our culture's fast, quick, trends. Let's have a trend. Let's call it this. Let's call it that. And, you know, I've paid attention to the rare interviews that you can get, really, of Hanan when he's speaking English. But, you know, certainly Willie Noglo is my friend who runs Super Progressive. He's been interviewing all these DJs. And it's starting to sort of come into thinking that I'm not far wrong here. English culture is not geared up the way... Others are, right, yeah. um, and it could account a lot for us not potentially having this kind of music being more of a, you know, a nighttime normal thing for people to do. You know, we have gigs, money making gigs. We have pubs. We have the footy on Saturday, and it's all quick. The UK is just quick, quick, quick. 
and certainly our pop charts and our pop music and grime and we'll have our own version of rap and we'll have our own version of speed garage the one minute and then it's it's just it's trend led um and i think it's just pure almost chance that when the scene exploded in uk progressive actually was a massive start of that um and it only really did 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 global underground provide that specific type of music for people who who wanted it um and without them god knows what would have happened in the uk um because it just just would have been compilation cds galore so yeah it's it's a kind of yeah it's a kind of passion project isn't it sean it's like a you know progressive but yeah you know um I, I, I don't see it as a dirty word and I don't want to even really say that because it's because it's not. I just think it's a more thoughtful, intelligent music that isn't kind of instantly recognised to most people. Um, and it's long. It, it takes it, the, the tracks themselves generally are longer. They're not, they're not three or four minutes, are they? No. So I'm under six minutes. Days yeah. Well, I tell you what, it's, it's interesting you say that because when you're suddenly faced with the way me and Richard play together, we do an hour on, hour off, hour on, hour off. And then at the end, because um, we play for five and a half hours, we'll we'll do a back to back. I've actually found myself looking for shorter tunes because you can play more. Because <laughs> generally, you know, 10 tunes and you're at like 60 minutes or, or whatever. So um, there is quite a, there's a certain little style I've started to find that's, around the early doors club that's kind of not my normal style ready you know good for clubbing on the dance floor type music and those tracks are coming in around six minutes so you get more bang for your buck um but listen i'm I'm conscious of the time I've, i've kept you long enough um I can't thank you enough for just yeah giving me some of your time and chatting through some of this stuff and you know, I wish you the best of luck with things that are going on. Um, it's certainly by no means goodbye. Um, I'd love to hear about your plans with Sichoro uh, another time. And certainly if you get this um, this web space going, um, I, can't, I can't wait to see that because I think music and technology are quite closely linked, aren't they, these days? So yeah. nice to see you pushing the boundaries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's something... I think there's something there, but I'm not quite sure how to how to deliver it. Uh, but yeah, no, it's certainly interesting. Certainly interesting. Um, You've got about three mixes to knock off tonight, haven't you? <laughs> oh no! I, uh, well, <laughs> I did I did one earlier today <laughs> before we did this after my tea before this. I recorded the uh, my radio show for Monday, which was the last one I had to get done. So, do you um do you actually mix it? Do you actually mix, or do you do you um digitally mix? Do you use Acid Pro or any of the tools? Or uh, no, I mean uh, I'm um, generally when I'm doing stuff, it's going to be within Tractor. Yeah, so they're all Tractor based mixes that I um just for ease of getting them done really yeah i miss i miss tractor a little bit actually i did i did enjoy 
Um, my tractor um, kit, I absolutely loved it. Four decks and would do all sorts with it. Um, I just have the XZ now and um, I don't really practice. So if I get a mix, I put it on the stick and I go out. I've sort of, I program it, I program it and then I, and then I just go and do it. Um, so it's all very noisy and, and thrash about for the amount of time that I'm doing it. But um, I don't tend to practice a lot. I'm lucky that it's in my garage, so it's self-contained. I don't really have to bother Emma or do anything. So the, the, that's the way I kind of do it. And um, I sat there last night for about three hours. I wasn't really in the, you know, when you're not in the mood, Sean, and you're like, mm. you've got a lot of tracks and you're like, mm. and I, was, I, was, I was kind of in that, yeah, I was in that space last night. But sometimes I have to just stop and go, do you know what, when I come back to this, I'll, it'll, something will just, will just click and I'll slot together a couple of mixes. So, yeah, that's how it goes. Yeah. But yeah, let, stay, stay in touch. Please do um, keep providing y- your mixes for us. Um, it's great to have you on Progressive House UK. And certainly for me, I love I love listening to your style. There's a definite synergy with the with the style you have and the kind of lost in thing I used to do. Um, so I really enjoy listening to your mixes and uh this is you you really do have an ear for some for some beautiful music and i think that um that it's a real strength to the roster of djs we've got on there so thanks for that thanks very much but yeah don't don't be a stranger stay in touch and then maybe in in a few months time we'll get together again and we'll we'll have another chat mate sure yeah yeah it's been it's been good to finally meet (laughs) yeah yeah I'm uh, I'm not just the crazy guy behind the uh, behind the Facebook Messenger. <laughs> I'm crazy in real life too. But yeah, anything you need, just just reach out. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll um, I'll try and get this turned around. Um, have a quick squiz at it, and then I'll I'll drop you all the links. And I've done all the artwork already, so yeah, I'll share it all with you, and we'll uh, we'll see we'll see if people want to listen to us drone on. <laughs> All right, mate. Cool. So have a good evening and yeah, uh, yourself. yeah take care. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Have a good week. See you, Sean. Bye, mate.